We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the coolest people I ever met on Twitter is at Always the Self, a.k.a. Dr. Crystal Fleming, a brilliant and funny sociologist with a Ph.D. from Harvard and a professorship at SUNY Stony Brook and the author of an awesome new book called How to Be Less Stupid About Race. It's like critical race theory for dummies, and it's smart and lively and full of aggressive positions, not unlike what she does on Twitter. Let me tell you about this recent tweet she did that killed me. She said, quote, I don't know if reincarnation is a thing, but if it is, you could not pay me to come back to this planet. I would take my chances literally anywhere else in the universe, which is some Octavia Butler meets George Clinton, and it's just an attack on racism, sexism, classism, and climate change, and... See, she's brilliant. Her book digs into race in a really brilliant, rich, smart, funny, interesting way. I want everyone to check this out. So let's dig into it. It's Dr. Crystal Fleming on Toure Show. Crystal, your book is extraordinary. And it's interesting and it's fun and you make... This academic writing, really interesting, and just leap off the page. Thank and I want to you. talk about how you do that as a writer. But let's get to the core of it right away. How can people be less stupid about race? Mm, well, first is to center the experiences of people of color. Um, I think one of the biggest sources of racial stupidity uh, is white folks' decision to segregate their lives, their personal lives, um, and to really uh, center what sociologist Joe Fagan calls the white racial frame. Basically, white folks' ways of understanding themselves and, and the world that they have, uh, this world of white supremacy that we live in. And when you only look at white folks' perspectives on that, you miss almost everything that's important about race and racism. For example, that Race was created. It's not something that's natural. Um, it's not something that always existed. It's a modern invention that Europeans produced uh, for the purpose of consolidating power and exploiting people of color, at least people they came to define as people of color. Like, all of these things are made up. And when you focus on the perspectives of people of color, both in and outside of the academy, then you actually learn about the social construction of race. Um, Give me yeah. examples of racial stupidity. Mm. Racial stupidity. Uh, I don't see race. Mm. I don't see color. Mm. Racism ended a long time ago. Well, that's really um, Mike Ditka uh, made headlines a while back saying that oppression ended 100 years ago. I mean, like... That's idiocy. <laughs> Give me something 
closer to the line that like like I mean when you say I don't see color yeah. you think you're making a progressive productive statement but you're not right I mean like Trump and yeah. Ditka make really ridiculous statements but what's a what's you give me a little bit more in terms of examples like of I don't see color that aren't yeah that aren't like moronic it's it's tough though because you know the, <laughs> it's so widespread. You right. know, it's not just like the Mike Ditkas and the Trumps of the world. Like the stuff is widespread. Yeah. The idea that oppression ended a long time ago. Like people, regular folks think that. I people mean, think that Obama's election meant the, the end, end of, sure. of racism. And, right? and do you also mean in terms of like where we don't see diversity? You know, where like when a corporation has a photograph, like mm. look, it's all white people. Mm-hmm. Like oh my god, like mm-hmm. like where people are leaving out. Black and brown people from yeah. their narratives and and their Definitely. and their you know they're teaching a history in a high school or a college that does not right. include right from from white perspectives and not including uh, perspectives of people of color. Listen, one of the things I argue in the book is that even folks of color are not exempt from racial stupidity. Where, so yeah, where are black and brown people racially stupid? Well, what I argue is if you're socialized in a racist society, if you're born and raised, or just if you live in a racist society, then you're going to absorb racially stupid ideas. You're going to absorb ideas, first of all, about the, the, the social significance of race, the idea that uh, race is really like a core part of who we are, like in a really essential way. Sociologists call this biological essentialism, that like race is something that is uh, innate, uh, unchangeable. Uh, this is a normal idea, but it's not true. Um, and so the opposite of biological essentialism or essentialism altogether is the social constructivist perspective, the idea that we create race. Um, and, and by we, I don't really mean all of us, because, again, this is a sure. European invention. Um, but so where black folks and brown folks are involved in this is uh, I call it internalized oppression. And I, and I didn't create that term. Uh, but, you know, we only have to look to the Kanye's of the world, but also at ourselves. Right. Um, the idea that whites are associated with power and that they're superior. Even folks who think that they've gotten over that idea, it's embedded in our culture. Um, it's, it's, you know, who's in power? It tends to be white men. And so even folks of color internalize that. Uh, and you must know about, like, the doll test, yes, right, which would show that even young kids of color, black kids, uh, would prefer white dolls over black dolls. Like, this starts very young. very proud of my son when he was trying, I think we were trying to, I forget which school we were trying to get into. It was yeah. like a preschool, and yeah, yeah. he reached over the teacher to grab the brown doll instead yeah. of the white doll. But y'all like, had to do something, right? As Like, what did you do as parents to create that environment? Because you have to. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. one day we'll yeah. find out if he thinks we are good parents <laughs> or not. But the word stupidity is so strong; it seems almost pejorative. But yeah. w- when you went right to uh, <clears throat> the notion of, of what you think of yourself, yeah. and I see yeah. that in black people. And I was thinking about this example of mm-hmm. of I gave a speech at Bates, and I'll never forget it. That they were like. You know, what do we say to, you know, the little Bill O'Reilly's, mm-hmm. or the little Tucker Carlson's who are in our face mm-hmm. talking about blah, 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 blah. People are arguing in bad faith. People are arguing with fake facts. But these arguments for black people, black yeah. children who are in white institutions are very important, right? Yeah. And they're very fraught. And, they're, yeah. and they have to win these debates, but they don't have all the facts. They have all right. the feelings, but they don't have all the facts. Right. And, they, right. and I, I experienced those when yeah. I was in high school, when yeah, I was yeah. in college. And I had had this question many times. And in this moment, I finally said, 
you don't have to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I saw them mm -hmm. sort of melt into like, oh. Like you don't have to debate your humanity and your, right. you don't have to. You can <laughs> reject the yeah. conversation itself. Altogether. Yeah. And what I was yeah. doing was freeing them from white centrism. Yes. They were like, I have to have the conversation because the right. white person has demanded and I have to defend right. my blackness. And I'm like, no, no, you're here for you and your education. Mm -hmm. not. And we are placed in these institutions quite often as uh, an adjunct. We mm -hmm. are there to help enhance their mm -hmm. experience. So mm -hmm. that's part of that. Mm -hmm. And we internalize that narrative yeah. of yeah. we're supposed to be helping their yeah. experience. Yeah. And yeah. when we liberate our young people yes. and in some of our older folks yeah. from white centrism, it is so beautiful. Yes. And, the, yes. and I hate yeah. to, stupidity seems so pejorative because it's not their fault that they're white centric, mm. but it is their fault. Yes. But you have to yeah. see through the matrix yeah, to be yeah, able yeah. to get past that. Yeah. One, I mean, it's true that the term stupidity, it, it can even be, for some people, it's controversial. Some people consider it ableist, um, mm. and particularly because, you know, I think people have a notion that stupidity is something that only affects some, some people. You could put down stupid people. And I think that, that that's not where I'm coming from. Um, when I use the term stupidity, and especially the way I discuss my own learning process, I'm talking about socially produced ignorance that's harmful. Um, and, 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 and for many white people, it's willful. Um, they don't want to know history from the perspectives of people of color, uh, the perspectives of indigenous people and black folks. Um, and yet there are some who do want to learn, and I teach many of them, uh, folks of all backgrounds who come in my classes, and they genuinely want to learn. Uh, but I'm not going to try to convince white nationalists or people who are committed right. uh, to uh, you know, a vision of the world that's uh, deeply racist. I'm not trying to debate my humanity. My book and my writing, my teaching is not for those folks. Um, I'm really trying to reach folks who want to fight racism, who want to better understand it, uh, and who are ready to have a conversation about not just race and racism, but white supremacy, which is so much of my own analysis and something I learned from critical race theory. But black people are also sometimes uninformed, yep. ignorant And can even be complicit. Race. Can and be com complicit with white supremacy. Um, so, you know, we can have a conversation about folks like Booker T. Washington and take it way, way back. Um, Booker T. Washington, um, for all that he did that was helpful to black folks and all the work at Tuskegee that was very important. One of the things that Booker T. Washington did, he gave a speech called the Atlanta Compromise. And he essentially said that slavery was just as good for black folks as it was for white folks. Uh, I mean, so... People can analyze that and say, well, you know, that kind of narrative afforded Booker T access to white power. You know, we're talking about the 1800s. It's a very different political situation than we have now. But we have a lot of Booker T's today, folks who will tow a white supremacist ideology or anti-blackness, maybe because they find it expedient to do so. And I am thinking of folks like Kanye, uh, who ben blame Carson. Ben Carson's, Omarosa. you know. We could go down the line. Let's do right? it. Let's, yeah, the Omarosas. <laughs> Say and her that. name. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, you know, or we could talk about people who are not black, people like Dinesh D'Souza, um, mm. you know, who, uh, you know, could have a different perspective on race and racism as a person. Uh, uh, what is, yeah. where is the, the, so the white person who says, uh, you know, I don't see race, yeah. they are trying to be progressive, right? Maybe. 
or they're trying to deny that they have any complicity with racism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, I only I, I only bring up this example just yeah. to say I feel like their heart is trying to be in the right place. Sometimes, yeah. Where, where, what is that note for black people where they're mm -hmm. missing the mark, but they think they're not, so not as far as mm -hmm. Kanye and Clarence Thomas, mm -hmm. right? Where they're like, you know, Shelby Steele, is it Shelby Steele? Mm -hmm. <laughs> wait, which is, I forget which is. Wait, wait, not which Claude Steele, right? That's a whole different. Which is the, which is the one we like? <laughs> uh, Claude Steele we like. Right, 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 <laughs> yes. right, 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 right. Uh, you know, not that, yeah. but who, right? Who's. So what kind of racial ignorance for black folks is kind of like that I don't see? Actually, I have, you know, come across uh, particularly young people, uh, black students who say, you know, I don't see color or black people. Yes. Really? Uh, yes. Um, we were just watching in my race and ethnicity course yesterday uh, a film uh, called A Question of Color. Um, and it's about colorism. Right. In, in African-American communities, which it's not colorism is not just a problem for black folks. If you go to Asia, almost anywhere in Asia, skin bleaching uh, is a huge problem in Asia, as it is in Africa as well. Um, so that imprint of white supremacy and colorism is not just something we deal with. But colorism in black communities is a huge, mm -hmm. huge problem. Mm -hmm. um, the preference for light skin, mm -hmm. right, which we didn't invent, mm -hmm. uh, but can be complicit with. Um, we have research, cutting edge, cutting edge research out of Harvard, um, Ellis uh, Monk, who's published uh, on the effect of colorism when it comes to incarceration and policing. One of the things Monk has showed is that the gap between whites and blacks in incarceration is just about the same uh, as the gap between lighter skin black men and darker skinned black men. That is, if you're lighter skinned and, and black in this country, you have a less chance of being policed and incarcerated than darker skinned. Really? Right. So it's not just a black and white issue. It's also how we think about gradation and proximity to whiteness, right? Wow. So you can't understand colorism, though, unless you understand white supremacy, like the talk right. about the matrix, like right. that racial matrix. Um, and I think we have to have, you know, more honest conversations about that, that, you know, that's internalized oppression. Uh, and if we don't, you know, sort of not just call out other people like, oh, you know, that person's racially ignorant. But we say, wait a second, when do I find myself, you know, um, engaging in behavior or, or, or prejudice that uh, isn't just, again, black and white, but also is about colorism? And, pre you know, I mean, we, get, we have a long conversation also about um, romance and dating in, in black communities mm -hmm. and how colorism is a part of that and how that gets gendered, um, how women, black women who are lighter skinned and have a certain grade of hair uh, get framed in certain ways versus darker skinned black women and then how darker skinned black men, though, can be a sex symbol, right? In a way. So it's uh, it's an intersectional conversation. So wait, in terms of love and relationships, are you saying that 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 men can find sexuality and value on both ends of the spectrum, but women are having a harder time as you go darker? Is that? You know, I think that it's complicated. It's complicated. I would say that there is a valoration of dark black men in our society mm -hmm. that we don't see as much as we need to for, for dark, dark black women. women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, on the flip side, we can see, you know, if we talk about Michelle Obama, for example, mm -hmm. the fact that she was a brown sister was very politically important for Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like I said, it's a complex conversation. I think it mattered, for example, that Michelle was darker versus very, very light skinned uh, African-American woman, that it said something about 
I think for many, and I count myself in that number, we could talk about Obama later. Um, I write in my book about how I changed my, my views, but I very much remember that, you know, when I was excited about Obama, I was like, oh, he's with a sister, not just any sister, a brown chocolate sister. Yeah. For me, that signified a kind of commitment <laughs> to uh, black women and, and to the black community that seemed to challenge, right, that kind of status quo of valorizing light skin. Mm-hmm. African-American women uh, and trashing dark-skinned black women. So do you, and this is, I, I hate to do hypotheticals, but... Let's do it. If So if he showed up on the national mm. scene with a very light-skinned sister... Or with a white woman. Or well, with an Asian woman. With, with a, with a, yeah. I think with a white woman or an Asian woman, that completely yeah. changes the paradigm, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, honestly... In a massive electoral situation, it would be hard yeah. to get elected with, as a black politician yeah. who has a special burden of proving to the black yep. community, I'm with you, yeah. um, to show up with a non... And I think he knew that. Yes. I think he knew that. <laughs> and yeah. I don't think he marries Michelle for some political calculation, but I, I think that. Yeah. Barack plus a white woman yeah. maybe doesn't make it to the U.S. Mm-mm. Senate, right? Mm-mm. But Barack with a black woman who's light, mm. white people are like, he's with... Who he's supposed to be with, mm-hmm. so that that does mm-hmm. not up, that does not upset the apple cart. Mm-hmm. But do black people who, in the beginning, were like, I don't know, I like Hillary, the Clintons have been down with us, whatever you think about that. I don't think a he minute. gets as much cred in the black he community doesn't. without a Michelle. Among I mean, I can't, I don't know. We could play the hypothetical. If he was with a light-skinned woman, maybe, but I think it would have been more questionable. Um, I think at least if I, I have fun these days because a lot of people talk about uh, Michelle Obama's book. It's like, you know, blockbuster. And so I, I have fun kind of rewinding and thinking about how I regarded her, how I regarded her husband, like, eight years ago, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and I remember very much, and it was a conversation I'd have with other black women, like, you know, like he's down, you know. Um, and I don't think he gets that without someone like her. Mm. Now, here's another hypothetical. Now, what if Michelle had an afro? Now, like, you know, she she presents a certain kind of respectability politics, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if he was with a sister with, you know, the natural hair and all that, mm. I don't know if he gets to the presidency either. Right. There's a certain image of black authenticity, but also respectability that mm-hmm. I think both of them represent. Um, yeah, I think that's true. One of the things in your book that really <clears throat> that really blew my mind and I have gosh, I what have is this? Use this notion um, in some of my talks that white people in private don't really police racist comments from other Hell white no. people. They police that it was said. So they may say, you should not say that. Yeah. You should not yeah. verbalize that. Yeah. But not, you should not feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I, I know that there are white folks who are fighting these fights with their, their friends and family members. But some of them come to me, particularly students, or also at like book events. They tell me, you know, I'm having trouble. I'm getting pushback. You know, when I challenge my, you know, family member or whoever, and they say something racist, I get pushback. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of course you do. This is a racist society. What You need to expect that pushback and be willing to push back for like your whole entire life like that that is what you need and to be, to be able to unpopular do. for pushing back and maybe even lose relationships i think of folks like you know jane elliott um jane elliott uh is she's in her 80s at this point she's a white woman she became famous because she did this blue-eyed brown-eyed experiment um, okay. after martin luther king died she was teaching i think like a third grade class in iowa 
all white kids. And when Martin Luther King died, she's like, I'm going to teach my classroom about prejudice. And so she arbitrarily divided the brown eyed from the blue eyed and set up a system of privileges, so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, Jane has been doing anti-racist educational work for decades, and she's been very open about how it cost her relationships. It cost her family relationships. She describes being basically run out of her Iowa town. Mm. Um, and so I think a lot of white folks who start their anti-racist journey don't understand that the resistance, if you're doing the work, you're going to meet resistance. Mm -hmm. That's actually a sign that you're doing something correct. Mm -hmm. um, and I get worried that they give up too, uh, too soon. Or, you know, if, if, if this is something that you can opt to do, that is, you know, fight against white supremacy, a lot of folks, particularly who benefit from the system, who are just not going to fight that fight, you know. Um, you remind me of when I was in high school, they wanted to do, we did do, an apartheid day, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. was meant to show what it feels like. And so how did you all do that? Well, the black student group um, <clears throat> agitated for, let's switch it. Yeah. Black students get to you know, go through any door. We get the we get prize privileges. table at lunch. Yeah. We get all the privileges, and the white students don't. And this notion was very frightening, and the administration would not accept it, and they decided to do some random mm. lottery to decide what group each individual would be in. Okay. And it seems to me quite often that when white people want to do some sort of grand experiment to show what race is like, yeah. they won't just do it based on, right, like, like yeah. with Jane, Jane broke through that. They won't yeah. just do it based on actually your actual biological facts. Right. They need to randomize it. Yeah. It would have been so powerful to do it in the actual uh, to do it based on the actual race. And we would have yeah. released that. That's what it is. It's yeah. not randomized. I mean, Please. Well, there are not a lot of white folks who want to experience that what or want really to. Like. Right. And and even those who would want to, they can't. Like a, a day in the life. Of course. You know, I mean, there have been, you know, white folks who, you know, black like me, you know, or, you know, who've covered, there's, you know, whatever, who have Rachel tried to. Dolezal. Well, yeah, there's Rachel. That's a whole <laughs> other situation. You know, wait a minute. Um, if somebody. Oh, my gosh. Are we going to talk about tribe, Rachel? <laughs> Should we not? Yeah, sure. The more the barrier. Mm, you <laughs> might know how I feel about that. I feel like there have been uh, too many black men who have defended Rachel Dolezal. I'm not um, defending her. I'm not saying you are, but there have been. And I think, you know, black women who actually have to be black women, you know, are justified in giving Rachel Dolezal the side eye um, for sure. And. You know, I mean, the woman, she didn't she sue Howard University saying, you know, at one point she was like, I'm suing as a white woman. And then she's like, but now I'm really black. I mean, yeah, she's got she's got some uh, challenges. Um, you, you know, I love how you let's just do it. You know, you, you love how you call CNN hot trash fire. <laughs> but I know that MSNBC is probably not far away mm -mm. for you. No. And I'm not going to agree with you. Uh, I hear but you. Yeah. What, 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 is MSNBC hot trash fire or are they a little better than CNN? Let me, let me put it this way. Let me contextualize. Listen, I'm an academic. I'm a professor. I also work in an arena of, of white supremacy. Um, and I know there are people who object to academia. They don't like uh, 
the academic setting and 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 the perform the performative uh, diversity that can happen in these settings and are very critical of academia. Um, and when I hear folks, you know, go on their rants, and I sometimes am one of the people ranting about academia, I I get it, and yet I also have decided to make my intervention in that space, at least for now. And so when I critique mainstream media and corporate media, um, I do so from a place of understanding that representation, even in these spaces that I find problematic, is important, um, and that there are folks in the trenches in these spaces, whether it's CNN or MSNBC or wherever, doing the work. And so I get that. I also, though, have to be honest. Like, if we rewind 10 years ago... I might have watched CNN, MSNBC, and not found it particularly problematic. Um, I would have been like, okay, whatever, you know. Do you find it. MSNBC problematic now? I mean, in what I put way? them Tell in me. the whole pot of corporate media. In what ways? I mean, in a lot of the ways that academia is also problematic. That is, who is in decision-making positions? I mean, who is running the networks? Who's cutting the checks? Who is making... But, um, but, but what are you seeing on the air Trash. What does that mean? Um, it means I don't see, I don't see a lot of um, critical race perspectives. I see a lot of, and I and I have to say I don't watch CNN <laughs> at all <laughs> these days, so <laughs> I can't tell you what's on the air now. Yeah. But what what I see is a lot a circus show. I see folks who, you know, just want to get ratings um, and are not really invested in transformative change uh, and calling out white supremacy. And I think part of what I can do as an academic that's not so easy to do in almost any other field is to say, listen, my critique of white supremacy is not just about, you know, that sector of society over there or those folks over there. It's about where I work, too. And I I don't see a lot of folks in the media, uh, mainstream media, who are saying, wait a second, white supremacy is a problem on our network. White male supremacy is not just a problem uh, in Charlottesville. Uh, It's a problem even in our in our mainstream media uh, and you know, we see too much too much money determining uh, what happens on the screen. I mean, I welcome your critique, and I surely agree that MSNBC could be better. Yeah. And many of the things that you write about media, um, I took to heart. And there's a lot of both siderism. You know, well, that I mean, destroys I think, me, and that, well, that's a, that's and a media wide exactly, problem. exactly. And it's also, I mean. Both sides, let's get the neo-Nazis to talk and right. let's get, you know, the, right. right. And, and that drives ratings. Right. But it also is repulsive. I agree. Um, and that's something that is not just uh, corporate, you know, cable TV. It's in the, it's in the news. It's in the, it's in the newspapers. When, when I look at MSNBC, there's a lot of smart people on the air. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some of them are actually intellectuals. Yeah. Very few of them are academics, which gets to serious academics, which gets you a higher level okay. of intellectualism. And I think it is valuable for the nation mm-hmm. when serious academics come down from the ivory tower yeah, yeah, yeah. and go on an yeah. MSNBC. Yeah. And when you have... I think Melissa Harris Perry being yeah. there every week, yeah. twice a week, yeah. you know, explaining things from her vantage point yeah. was incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Mark Lamont Hill can do his thing, mm-hmm. that's incredibly valuable. And there's a yeah. few other people, yeah. Dyson, right, who get mm-hmm. on and 
I, you know, I would. Li- I know that there's a there's an emotional sort of barrier that the academy looks down on doing that sort of work, and I think mm. it is valuable. And I would like to see people like mm-hmm. you, you mm. specifically, and others like you, coming down from the ivory tower a little bit more often to explain things from your so, perspective, even if I disagree. Yeah, I want the smartest folks, and especially the smartest black folks in America, appearing on television every once in a while to let us know how let they Let me tell think. you what I want. I want the Melissa Harris Perrys of the world uh, and other black academics who have important knowledge to share with the public. I want us to not be dependent on white-controlled media entities. That's what I want. We don't have MHP's show anymore because of those power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as we are dependent on a power structure, right, that we are not empowered by, then we're going to see, you know, your show's going to get cut if Mm -hmm. certain people uh, don't agree with what you're saying, um, even if your knowledge is valuable. I think, you know, social media, for all of its imperfections, and it has a lot of them, uh, is another space where academics and activists and others can reach the public. Um, it's a space that I find valuable. I'm taking a little break uh, from time to time. I have to step away from it. Uh, but for someone who isn't particularly a big fan of cable news, for example, I still think that, okay, social media is great. But even then, I don't own Twitter. You know, uh, people of color don't own Facebook. Um, and is, so we have to think about that, too. Is So in your model... Is BET, which is owned by Viacom, mm-hmm. is BET sufficient or does it have to be yeah. like own or is own insufficiently you know, black? I would have I would have been excited about own and what Oprah could do um, with her network if she had used her network in a more political way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I see a lot of Tyler Perry and a lot of entertainment and that's valuable too. I didn't see own get used, even though there's a black woman who owns it, um, in a way that was deeply political. Um, and maybe that will happen. Maybe, you know, you have to establish ratings and get, you know, your revenue. Um, but I think it would be great to have black ownership and people of color ownership that's combined with, you know, activism and politics. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. 
Each of NPR's Black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. We'll get back to the show in one second, but I want to give a shout out to Policy Genius, long-term supporters of the show, because they know life insurance is not fun. This is not stuff people want to think about and want to deal with. But you know what's less fun than signing up for life insurance? Thinking about what your family would do, God forbid something happened to you, and you didn't have life insurance to take care of them after you're gone. That is super no fun. That's the sort of stuff that would keep me up at night wondering what the hell are these people, my children, my wife, going to do after I'm gone because I don't have life insurance. That would make me an insomniac. I can't have that. I got to go to Policy Genius, make sure that they are taken care of. God forbid a truck runs into me tomorrow, which eh, could happen. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance in just minutes. You can do it on your phone, compare quotes from top insurers. You can apply for it online, and Policy Genius will handle all the red tape, all the crappy stuff you don't want to do, so you can get back to doing the things you actually enjoy, like hanging out with your family in the park going to recitals, doing things that you love to do, which does not include getting life insurance. Having life insurance is cool. Getting life insurance is blah. But go to Policy Genius and make getting life insurance more interesting, quick, almost fun. Because having it is fun because you know your family's taken care of if something happens to you. If you've been intimidated or frustrated by getting insurance in the past then give Policy Genius a try. Go to policygenius.com to get quotes and apply in minutes. Do it on your phone. It's the easiest way to compare and buy life insurance so you will know that your family is taken care of. God forbid something happens to you. Policy Genius, give it a try. What have you learned in your studies this book and just in general 
that could help ease the stress that black people feel living in this society? What, help what, ease the stress? Yeah, what do, you, what do you want us to know or to think about that would just make life under white supremacy just a, just a smidge easier? Gosh, no one's ever asked me that question before. That's interesting. You know, it's interesting because the more I've studied these issues, the higher my stress level. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, I don't talk to a lot of, you know, organizers and activists who are like, you know, Zen, you know, who are like, yeah, I'm, you know, really in my happy place. I think yeah. when you care about oppression, um, there's a there's a level of discomfort and, and agitation um, and stress that is normal if you're like if you have a functioning moral compass at the same time i think for me what was really liberating um was to realize that uh you know racist bullshit is not our fault Mm -hmm. and when i say our i really mean in particular black folks and people of color um when i realized that I, i remember um, when I was in college uh, and was very historically um, uh, uninformed, uh, I reached out to a black professor and I was like, why are black people struggling all over the world? Mm-hmm. Like, what's wrong with us? I remember writing that email. This must have been like 2001 or something. And, you know, because he was uh, a scholar who loved black people and had read everything, uh, his response was, "Take you need to take my damn class. <laughs> he didn't put it like, Mr. Like, you need to get educated. And once I, you know, embarked on that path of getting educated, I realized, wait, there's nothing wrong with us. Um, and I learned about anti-blackness. I learned about what is really the mythology of white superiority. And that, for me, was very liberating. And so that took away one kind of stress, that is the stress of thinking, oh, wait, is there something wrong with blackness? But it introduced another kind of stress, which is, wow, white supremacy is fucked up. Like, and not just white supremacy, because I write about, you know, I'm openly bisexual, I'm queer, um, I'm a woman, you know, so thinking about power and domination, not just in terms of race, but also in terms of um, class and gender and, and other axes of, of, of oppression, that could actually, you know, be very stressful at times. Um, I turn to things like meditation, mindfulness, spirituality. I'm not religious uh, at all. I grew up in a very religious household, but, um, you know, my adult life uh, has veered away from that. But I'm deeply spiritual. And so that, as well as community um, and loving relationships, that for me is my solace. Um, There's an activist uh, uh, named uh, Miriam Kaba uh, who argues that hope is a discipline. Um, when mm. I read that quote, uh, I didn't quite grasp its its importance at first. And then I realized, wait a second, when you care about these issues, it's easy to feel hopeless. Your hope gets challenged. You know, an election didn't go your way or change isn't coming as quickly as we want. Um, and if you want to keep working these issues, you can't just bring hopelessness. You can't just bring and there's some people who kind of do. Um, and it's hard, especially now. It's really hard to remain hopeful. <sighs> What makes you say that? What's the especially now part? The 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 rise of the rise. white nationalism. Yes, and the ru- and, the and Kavanaugh the, situation, sexism, Me Too. Like what? Are, what I is mean, your... yes. I mean, mainly the rise of white nationalism mm-hmm. um, in the White House, out of the White House, mm-hmm. and how that is 
pulling others up in terms of well, I'm I'm only white nationalist on a three. You're you know <laughs> Richard Spencer's on a twenty. I'm only on a three, but I feel comfortable saying right, my stuff. Right. And you know I remember growing up, or even just in the in when we talked about Obama. In that era, we talked about dog whistles, right? Because mm-hmm. they were secretly yeah. signaling their racism, yeah. but you had to be subtle with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, people wear t-shirts yeah. like fuck niggas, yeah. like yeah. whoa, like I didn't know you could wear that t-shirt on TV. Like, well, you know, stop yeah. me. Yeah. I, I'm, it, it's it's so overt now, and it's painful, and it feels like it, it it's it's going to be it's going to be really hard. To go up and through this, and the yeah. chasm that is being created um, in terms of the wealth gap. Yeah, and it's getting worse. Like it's getting, it's getting worse. worse. And, and, and at what point is it like it's it's too far gone? It'll never ever be yeah. fixed. You know, there's a um, perspective in critical race theory uh, called racial realism. So Derek Bell, um, which is one of the founders of critical race theory, he argued racism and white supremacy is a permanent feature of the United States. He came to this conclusion after, you know, being a civil rights lawyer and and, uh, and scholar. Uh, and on the one hand, that can seem like a deeply, and it is, a deeply pessimistic, um, even hopeless perspective. On the other hand, if you accept it, and I'm not saying I do, but I find it a compelling argument, if you accept that there's something that's already so deeply ingrained in our institutions and in this country's culture um, that cannot be magically undone and maybe can't be fully undone at all. If we can leave that aside and focus on, all right, if this is the situation, how do we fight even though we we might not be able to completely undo it? Um, I find that this conversation can be hard sometimes with people who are invested in saying things like, we can end police violence, we can end racism. Maybe we can. Maybe we can't, but I know as a woman, patriarchy has existed for thousands of years. I'm going to fight the shit out of it, even if I know I'm definitely not going to live to see the end of it. So how do we find our hope, even if a situation of oppression is quite long and is going to outlive us? I think that we have to look for where we can make change in our sphere of influence, and we all can do that. Um, of course, it's depressing on an existential level to see how comfortable people are with their racism uh, and to see that things that couldn't have been said 10 years ago, now folks are just like, you know, coming out with it. On the other hand, I see it as a moment of opportunity because I'd rather the shit be out in the public sphere and we can name it and we can acknowledge, yeah, you know what? It's really fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to thinking, oh, we, we've come so far, we've gotten over something that we have not gotten over. We met on Twitter. Yes. And uh, I love your Twitter. You're really good well, at why? it. Why? Because you're just smart. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm funny. doing on Twitter, just so we, let we're me, clear. Let me explain to you and them part of what you're okay. doing. But I mean, like, you know, your writing's really smart and thoughtful and funny and. <laughs> Intellectually, I appreciate aggressive. that you appreciate some of my humor. For example, it means a lot. there's a couple of tweets that I read again last night that just were killing me, and yet still making a really deep, smart, intellectual point. Um, you, you, in one, you said you could not pay me to come back to this planet. I would take my <laughs> chances literally anywhere else in the universe. <laughs> and then in another tweet, you continue the thought. 
It should be illegal for humans to leave Earth's orbit. I stand by it. The species does not deserve the right to planetary colonization. I hope aliens intervene to prevent the inevitable cosmic catastrophe that will result from rich men spreading their trash throughout the universe. My daily prayer. (laughs) I hope if there is intelligent life anywhere that can hear this, please save us from ourselves. (laughs) Stop us (laughs) before we we kill your planet too. What kind of people think that you could just like destroy an ecosystem (laughs) and then be like, oh yeah, let's go to another planet. We we got this. We're doing so well on Earth. We can therefore, no. I mean, this is like some Octavia Butler, Greg Tate stuff, and you're talking about racism, capitalism, colonization, colonization, climate change. I mean, like, there's so many (laughs) interplanetary travel classes. I mean, there's so many things that are, and it's and it's funny and it's deep that you're like. Aliens, if you can hear me, help you us. don't want to come. Like, everyone mm. else is like, where are the aliens coming? You're like, aliens don't come or come and police us. Yeah, like, help <laughs> us. I, yeah. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm kind of, I'm a nerd uh, in many different ways. So, like, I grew up on Star Trek, The Next right. Generation. So I do think about, like, interplanetary, uh, you know, uh, intergalactic stuff. Um, and also, I also think like really long term. So, you know, I think about things like, wow, like this planet has been here for like four and a half billion years. Um, You know, the history of white supremacy is a couple hundred years. Um, The history of our, you know, species, we're talking about a couple hundred thousand years. And in so many ways, as horrible as these problems are, it's a blip on even the human radar. Um, And so some people think, well, you know, we created, we... (laughs) Europeans. But, you know, folks created white supremacy. They created these systems of oppression. Therefore, we can uncreate them. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true. We mentioned climate change. Like, sometimes there's a tipping point, right, at which something that has been created cannot necessarily be undone. Uh, And yet, you know, sometimes I'm thinking, you know, what does the world look like a thousand years from now, a hundred thousand years from now? Are humans still on this planet? Uh, I don't know. And I don't know if it would be horrible if we weren't. It's a terrible thing maybe to say. But I think that life is so much bigger than just our species. And I think we have to have that kind of, maybe it sounds weird, but I think we have to care about life generally and not just humans. Because we just care about humans. We'll trash this planet and think, oh, well, you know what, we'll go to Mars and we'll do it. You, are you certain there are aliens? I have no idea. <laughs> and, and if there are, they may be evil. I don't know. Um, I think the universe is so huge that it would be really, really weird if, like, this is the only place out of I don't know how many trillions upon trillions of planets, this is the only place where there's the concoction necessary for life and for life to develop intelligently. If that's true, I find that deeply depressing because this means this is as good as it gets. And like, this is as good as it gets. I have to believe <laughs> that it gets better than this somewhere. And if it doesn't, damn, like, you know, that's that's if this fucked is the up. Best if this is the best, like, the I'm so mad. <laughs> like, I'm livid. If this is it, god damn it. So there must be another society somewhere I that's hope. not racist and classist and sexist. I'm and... sure they have their problems, but. How was racism created? 
How is it? You know, one of the uh, major misconceptions about racism and specifically white supremacy is that, you know, Europeans, you know, had these preconceived notions of their superiority and people of color being inferior. And that's why they went to Africa and started the slave. And and none of that's true. What's true is Europeans began colonization, colonization of the Americans. They began their involvement in transatlantic slave trade. And then they created an ideology to justify all that shit. That's that's the reality. Um, if you go back um, and look at the history of, of Europe and how they regarded ideas of blackness and whiteness, George Fredrickson is a historian who wrote a great book, um, uh, very short, but it's called Racism, A Short History. One of the things he shows is that there's evidence of negrophilia in Europe that is valorizing blackness, as well as, of course, there have been, you know, there's a history of, of blackness being a, a, you know, stigmatized category associated with evil or whatever. But there's also a history of Europeans loving uh, Africans and blackness. And so there is no very long history of Europeans just thinking that Africans are barbarians. You know, it's a, it's it's not that. We see that after colonization began, after the transatlantic slavery tra- uh, slave trade began, then Europeans felt the need to justify it. And so then they started creating, uh, whether it was through scientific racism, European scientists coming up with the hierarchy and putting themselves at the top, unsurprisingly, uh, and non-Europeans on the bottom. Uh, we start to see in the 1800s the crystallization of what would later come to be known as white supremacy. But by then, Europeans had been involved in colonization and the slave trade for several hundred years. Can you be a little more, even more specific Mm -hmm. about, like, can you point to, like, here are some of the first people and here are some of the building blocks that they used to create? Absolutely. Uh, To go back to what I was talking about with scientific racism, uh, there were a whole host of European um, botanists, biologists, scientists, uh, folks like uh, Arthur de Gobineau, who was a French scientist, um, and others who uh, developed a hierarchy. And what's interesting is that it's not just a hierarchy between Europeans and non-Europeans, but a hierarchy even of Europeans, right, where certain European groups are placed on top, Nordics, uh, folks from what's now called Germany, placed on top, Mediterraneans on the bottom. So Italians, too close to Africa. So, mm-hmm. And so this hierarchical notion of being human and with ranked order of human beings then they're, underneath humans are animals, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so this worldview developed by European scientists, but also by European politicians and, and in the United States, uh, uh, we had, uh, you know, folks like Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, definitely thought that whites were superior and blacks were inferior. But we're also saying we need to look to science to, to prove this. I mean, that's one of the things that Thomas Jefferson literally said, is that we, we need science to explain why, why we are superior. And so there's this marriage between scientific racism and white, so-called white European politicians, Eurodescendant politicians, where together they justified their exploitation of uh, Native American land, their exploitation of, uh, uh, of African labor. I find it kind of ironic, and I don't know whether it's depressing or, or, or a source of hope, that human beings generally have to justify their shit. 
Like they, they, they don't generally feel okay just oppressing people. They have to come up with the reason why it is okay. And we've seen that, you know, we've seen religion used as a, a, a way to justify that. Uh, we've seen, you know, scientific racism. But I think it's, it's a really interesting thing that people need to be convinced to dehumanize others, to convince that it's okay to do. Um, what's depressing about it is that they're still convinced. I mean, there's there are all these ways in which even today uh, people want to believe that they're superior to others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even, you know, that's not just something that white folks and Europeans do. There are people of color who come up with, you know, ideas as to why we are superior to other groups. There, there are, there's a whole idea around black supremacy um, and, and people wanting to believe in some kind of biological superiority. And that's a, I find that depressing. Did you say that Barack Obama is becoming the unclest of Uncle, Uncle Tom's. Tom's. What are you talking about? Do you about? know how Michelle's much? Husband do like you that know for? the fights I've had with my own family members about that line in my book? My mom was so mad. She's like, "You cannot say this about Barack Obama." Um, you know, I have to say, uh, living through Black Lives Matter really shifted how I viewed Obama. It wasn't just Black Lives Matter, but it was a big part of it. Um, I, <laughs> I was talking to one of my aunties recently, and she was like, Crystal, here's the deal. You were in too deep with Barack. You were, you know, you drank the Kool-Aid. And I did. When I worked in, on his campaign, his first campaign, I must have been 26 years old. And I just put this man on a pedestal, everything that he represented to me uh, as a relatively young person at that time. And then when I saw what his presidency became, when I saw how, you know, literally the dude was revering the Confederacy every year of his presidency, something that presidents have done before him, laying a wreath, you know, for Confederate soldiers, that is white supremacy. Um, when I saw that he spoke to black audiences in certain ways that were patronizing, that he would never talk to police in the same way that he talked to black people, I, f I found well, myself once. repulsed. He did once. I found myself he got repulsed. slapped down for trying to do that, for he, saying that police behaved stupidly. Yeah, so and he saw a massive one time. political backlash. Right, right, and you know, so I think that I became very personally invested in his presidency early on, and he, then when I saw he, how he it played about, out, I was repulsed. You talk about. Black Lives Matter with Obama when Ferguson happened mm. and it became the, the sort of uh, the, the beginning of Black Lives Matter yeah. there, right? And he, he doesn't say, well, it's a state matter, I'm out of it. He sends Eric Holder. Mm -hmm. as He was a proxy for himself, clearly suggesting we have great respect for your position. We don't mm. want you to break the law, mm. but Eric Holder is here to shake hands, to say, you know, we respect, we want to hear what you have to say, mm. right? That is not something that any other of the presidents we've seen, except maybe Bill Clinton, would have even thought to do. I think the do. bar is so low for what it looks like for presidents and politicians to stand with black people. Sending Eric Holder, I'm not impressed. Um, when you have uh, a president who, you know, is referring to black activists with denigrating language, whether you're calling them thugs or whatever you're calling them, I don't consider that a high bar. I think that's a very low bar, sending Eric Holder. Um, I think, you know, 
He got a lot of flack, Obama, for saying, you know, um, when Trayvon Martin was mm-hmm, killed mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he could have been my son, could have been my son. He got a lot of flack from particularly white folks when from he said right. that. Yeah. So there's a way of looking in that and saying, you know, no other president, maybe except for Bill, I don't know, would have said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a way where you could frame that as he was really standing for black folks. I don't read it that way. Yeah. I think that. No, I don't. I think that that's a very low bar. What I want to see from a president is something that I think is almost impossible to see from a president of the United States, which is to take a strong stance against white supremacy and to take a strong stance in favor of fighting for racial justice. Barack Obama tried, I think, to negotiate a very difficult position for him because on the one hand, he needed to signal black authenticity even after he won the presidency. On the other hand, he needed to appease white voters uh, who would punish him for almost any minor uh, you know, uh, effort to stand with, uh, with racial justice and stand with black folks uh, and people of color. You know, when he comes out and says, you know, uh, I'm not the president of black America, I take that very seriously because he wasn't. Right. Um, he was a president uh, who never spoke out against white supremacy, ever. He's a post-president who hasn't done that either. He's a president who um, won the white vote by throwing his uh, pastor. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Has to write under the bus uh, and, and distancing himself from uh, a, a harsh critique of, of white supremacy in this country. He's someone who studied critical race theory, but then openly rejected it. Um, he studied uh, under Derrick Bell, for example, right. uh, but then, you know, made a political choice to not oppose white supremacy, to instead negotiate within it. And listen, you know, I don't think he could have become president otherwise. Right. And I think that's the reality. Um, you do a really good job at making academic writing and thought come across in a really interesting way. 
and a lot of academics <laughs> fail to do that, and their work is fairly dry yeah. and will then only be read in the academy. Right. And like this book, I would give to my mom, I would give to anybody, you know, um, which is not to say that mom is just anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying. You yeah, clear that out. Don't, 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 don't take that away, mom. I'm, not, I'm just saying that this book would not. Not just academics, not just. Yeah, it yeah. would not drag people who are not, you know, intellectuals. But it's you're giving them that primer on critical race theory. Mm-hmm. So just as a writer and an academic, how do you take these ideas and demystify them and bring them down mm-hmm. so that, you know, people who are ba- like the, basically the, the nation is your students, mm. right, that you're explaining it to mm-hmm. in a way that's really interesting. Thanks for asking that question. You know, Tori, I had writer's block for like 10 years. Really? <laughs> so when I was in graduate school, all I could do was academic writing. Mm. Um, and I, I used to be a poet. Like when I was in college, I was still doing performance poetry. Um, ever since I was a kid, I loved creative writing. Then I started my PhD, and it's like that part of my brain just shut down. Mm. Um, and when I would meet up with poet friends at cafes and try to write, like nothing would come out. Like they'd be writing, they'd, and I, I'd be looking at a blank page. So I really had to find my voice again, um, but also find a way of writing that was clear because that's actually not rewarded in academia. You know, it, academics, they like jargon. Uh, they like, you know, complicated ways of writing, and that gets rewarded So to find a way to write clearly, uh, to distill complex concepts in ways that, you know, my mother, you know, could access. You know, I share almost all of my work with my mom. She poured over my book um, and argued with me about different parts of it, but also really liked a a lot of it. Um, So Twitter actually was a big tool for me. Blogging before I started tweeting as much as I've tweeted. Um, Finding spaces outside of academia to write. Um, getting feedback from the, from the public pretty, you know, immediately. Um, and also, this probably sounds strange, but meditation helped me a lot. Meditation helped Medita- you as a writer? Help, yeah, helped my creative oh. process. Um, helped me listen to myself. Uh, a lot of meditation is bringing your attention to the present moment, mm-hmm. uh, even observing your thoughts and your feelings and all that. Um, and it really sort of put me back into myself uh, in a way that uh, allowed for my creativity to to flourish. And so then it wasn't, you know, writing to appease an academic audience, but writing increasingly for myself. Um, and so it helped meditation helped me uh, ground myself, uh, find my voice. And it's still a big tool for me. What's your meditation practice look like? It looks strange. I, I don't... <laughs> There's a theme here. Um, well, I don't. I don't go. Okay, maybe a couple times a year, I'll go with a group, like mm-hmm. you know, a meditation group. I'll go to a retreat. But usually, it's a lot of just conscious breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like guided meditation. So there are particular folks with that I apps. listen to apps. Which app do you like? Calm is cool. Mm-hmm. It's expensive, but it's good. Um, well, who 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 do you like in terms of guided med- guide meditators? Uh, who do I? Well, Calm has a lot of guided meditations. Yeah. Actually, I don't know who the woman is on Calm, but whoever that voice is, she's she's pretty good. I used to listen um, to Tara Brock. Who's Tara? She Tim Ferriss introduced me to her. I mean, like through the show, not that okay. I know Tim Ferriss. Okay. And uh, she's a great um, guided. She's just great. can I like go YouTube? Yes, and, okay. yes, yes. And there's okay. there's you know thirty or forty different meditations that she guides you through. Oh. And she's you know she's recording. Herself yeah. leading a room full of people through it, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. 
It's really good. Yeah, That's you can awesome. access it for free on oh, her cool. website. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh is a, a Buddhist monk um, mm-hmm. who, you know, I've, I've sat with uh, in like a huge auditorium meditating with him, but he's got a ton of stuff online too. Um, Joel Goldsmith is a How um, long do you do for? Teacher. You know, it varies. I'm not rigid in that way, but an hour to anywhere from an hour to five minutes, you know. You'll go yeah. for an hour. I can, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean I have a like a hour commute to work. <laughs> so okay. you know, so meditating while I drive is something I do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm used to meditation with eyes closed. So I guess oh that's yeah, a eyes open, <laughs> eyes open. Oh, you're trying. Yeah, yeah. No, but I feel like meditation. If you're too rigid with it, it seems like something you got to only do in certain spaces at right. certain times, or you have to be. And that's cool too. For me, meditation is more of a way of life and living mindfully and, you know, whether it's using conscious breathing or I could be, you know, my my partner is a runner. So for her, like running, even in a marathon, could be a meditative practice, Um, especially as a person of color. I just feel like, you know, these things get framed in certain ways that white folks and rich white folks, you know, you've got to go in this retreat, you've got to join this group. You have to, you know, be in a space that costs whatever amount. I think, you know, part of making meditation and mindfulness accessible is you do you, you do it your way, you know, um, and fit it into your life. Um, Like I said, anywhere from a couple of minutes to an hour um, where I can squeeze it in. That's my self-care. What are some books you want folks to read to become smarter on race beside how Besides to be less mine. stupid about race. <laughs> you know, I do cite a lot of books uh, in my book. So pl- if you read it, like read the notes where I'm pointing you to other um, uh, books. But uh, I think a, a great book is uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, mm-hmm. uh, who explains how, you know, our educational system is really coming from um, a very narrow perspective that excludes people of color, indigenous folks, black folks, and so on. And we get a lot of misrepresentations and and just, you know, High school education, that's kind of what he focuses on. Um, I think it's great. People should uh, write about this book in my book, but uh, Two-Faced Racism uh, by Leslie Picka and Joe Fagan is a really good book because it goes back to how white folks talk about race behind closed doors. It's a, What I love about the book is this is not people just saying, well, white people are like this. This is white folks' own self-reports of how they behave uh, behind closed doors. Um, you talk about they, that book a lot in uh, your book. Yeah, because I, I, learned, I learned a lot from it. it. I think for people of color, you won't be surprised, but to see white folks telling themselves and the way that they do is just fascinating. Um, two-faced racism. Two-faced racism. Um, so that's a good book. Um, I think folks should read about, like, the historical construction of race, right, to really kind of denaturalize it. So that George Fredrickson book, Race, uh, Racism, A Short History, is good. Last one maybe I'll mention is a, a great book called The Ethnic Project, um, which is by a sociologist named Vilna Bashi Treitler. Mm-hmm. And it really explains how our immigration system is connected to white supremacy mm-hmm. um, and how and she has these great case studies showing how different waves of immigration and, and folks coming from different parts of the world have encountered uh, our racial hierarchy and white supremacy and kind of negotiated within it and how the path to assimilation in our country has meant affirming white supremacy and distancing from blackness. Uh, And she traces that for different uh, immigrant groups. You were tweeting about Mark Lamont Hill's situation. Um, does Does it scare you? Does it give you a chill to see someone fired from one job because of something they said that was 
measured, intellectual. Yeah. They were making an argument. They were not denigrating a people. They were at yeah. least criticizing a government, yeah. right? Not generalizing about Jewish people. Yeah. Um, and now folks are talking about removing him from Temple for something that is, it's... What, what do you think about that? I think it's terrible. A, a tenured professor. I, I mean, it's a, it's an attack on academic freedom. Um, it is a sign of political repression. Uh, it's also, you know, getting to what I've said earlier about corporate media uh, and how, you know, if your political views don't align with the folks writing the checks, then we see what can happen. And particularly for, and not only, but particularly for black folks in the public sphere uh, who get policed uh, and, and, and repressed in particular ways. Um, so I, th- I think that, you know, on the one hand, when CNN fired Mark Lamont Hill, you know what I think about CNN. I was like, well, you know, trash network. <laughs> Uh, but when I saw, fire. yeah, but when I saw, oh, they're going after his academic job, it's a public institution, so number one, it would be illegal. But in some cases, folks know that they can't get him fired, but the effort is still to undermine, to stigmatize, to create a climate of fear, uh, to, to pull people in line. Well, you know, don't criticize Israel or you're not going to be able to, you know, have your whatever, your, your access. Um, so I think that, you know, he has, I, I listened to the podcast that he did with you. I thought it was an excellent interview for folks, especially, I know I had never heard that phrase uh, from the river to the sea. Uh, and then I had to read about it and, and, and learn about it. I thought your, your interview with him helped demystify what it meant. But, you know, We've also, I've also read, you know, over the past, you know, um, week since uh, this started to hit the news, uh, more about it. And I think that, again, it's just a sign of we live in a politically repressive time. I don't think there's ever a time in our history where that wouldn't have been the case. But I think it shows that, you know, we haven't come as far as we'd like to think. This is not the way I think a democracy should function. Does it have an effect on you as somebody who has a lot of strong opinions that are outside the mainstream? Are you tenured? I am tenured, yeah. Do do you think, like, they could do the same thing to me if I'm critical Um, of the wrong thing? I I am not naive about that. And so I think uh, one of the important things, and I've always felt this way because I didn't wait for tenure. I can't say always. I felt this way for, for quite some time. I didn't wait for tenure to be um, uh, critical in the public sphere. Um, I didn't even wait till tenure to to begin writing this book. and people often ask me, like, how, you know, how, how are you so outspoken? Um, and what is that like? Um, I think that economic independence is very important, uh, particularly if you are a, a black or brown person in a racist society. You need to have your own um, economic independence. And I mean, I'm, I mean that, um, you know, for academics and non-academics, like if you're trying to make an intervention in the public sphere, you can't be dependent on uh, just like, you know, whoever's writing your paycheck. You need to actually have some ownership over your own uh, resources. So that's something that I felt before what popped off uh, with Mark Lamont Hill, uh, you know, being fired and and uh, then folks trying to attack his position uh, at Temple. Uh, I think that... Uh, because of the power structure, you can't be naive about that. And do I feel fear? Um, you know, I think about, I'm wearing a, a T-shirt. Y'all can't see, but it's Ida B. Wells. Okay. Um, I feel like Ida B. Wells is one of my heroes, one of my sheroes, because she was so courageous. Um, I know she felt fear. Uh, she lived in a time, and, and one of the things she wrote so much about was lynching. 
and she was very critical of this white power structure, even like at the height of lynching in this country. I mean, she got death threats. You know, her newspaper uh, office was burned down. You know, she's mm. run out of uh, Memphis, uh, Tennessee. And that didn't stop her. You know, I believe she was very strategic, but she was also someone who, if she felt fear, she talked, you know, she was courageous anyway. So I think that there can be a perception that particularly black women or women of color, like, you know, we don't feel fear. No, we feel fear. But if you're courageous, you still got to do that shit anyway. Thanks to Dr. Fleming for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you that fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends what's going on over here on this show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Tyrese Hester with help from Candy Nicole and our photographer, Chuck Marcus. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.